Turn tonight, if you would, to the fifth chapter of the book of Hosea. I'm going to ask you a question. As we saw last time we were together in the book of Hosea, the court of the Lord had convened. The court proceedings took place. It was pretty clear what the verdict would be. And tonight, the verdict is handed down and the sentence is pronounced. And I want to preface tonight that probably pretty likely there are very few of you, if any, in this room tonight that need to be horribly concerned with the ramifications or the implications of this passage personally. But we need to be very concerned as a nation. And we need to be very concerned with those people likely in your life, like there are in mine, who name the name of Christ and yet walk in open rebellion to God. That is perhaps the most spiritually dangerous thing that a Christian can do. And tonight's passage, coupled with several others that I will give you, gives you a very clear understanding that the Lord has his limits. That grace, though abounding, does not reach out forever to everyone in every circumstance indefinitely in the face of rebellion and sin. And so tonight, as the sentence is pronounced, I want you to carefully look in your own life and ask yourself if there's somebody that you know, maybe it's someone who's here, someone that you know that you have not been honest with about their sin. And here's why I ask you the question. Unless we who know the Lord are willing to call sin, sin, then I guarantee you the enemy will not tell them it's sin. The world, their flesh, the devil will not tell them it's sin. And they likely will wander around in that sin until someone who names the name of Christ has sufficient boldness to walk up and put their arm around that person or withstand them to their face and say, Brother, sister, you have named the name of Christ and yet you walk in open disobedience to the plain teaching of His Word. And I'm not talking about the little, tiny, subtle nuances that maybe we might have disagreement upon about those things that might be liberty to one and sin to another. I'm talking about open rebellion. They're living with their boyfriend. They're living with their girlfriend. Parents, I speak to you. Your kids, if they are doing that, are not okay with God. They're not okay with God. If you know someone who professes the name of Christ and yet every evening has to down a handful of drinks and get drunk, they are walking in open rebellion to God. If you know someone who thinks medical marijuana is okay, they are walking in open 
rebellion to God. It alters their state of mind, and that is the definition of drunkenness. That is the definition of sorcery in your Bible. If you know someone whose mouth is an open sewer, and yet they name the name of Christ, they are walking in rebellion to God. Why am I saying this? Because we don't know where that road goes in the life of people who don't repent. But we have a very good inkling of where it leads. Individually, I can't tell you that God's going to give up on somebody. I will never look you in the eye and say that I know for sure that your Aunt Susie, your Uncle Jim, your mom, your dad, your cousin, your son, your daughter, your wife, your husband, is beyond God's reach. But your Bible says it is possible to get beyond God's reach. And I'm going to teach this passage tonight. It is possible to get outside of the grace of God, to where God just says, you want it? You want to keep doing it? My Holy Spirit will no longer speak to you. My hand will no longer reach out to you. I'm done. And because it is the wooing of God that draws men unto repentance, once that happens, it is over. They may walk on this earth for the rest of their days, but they'll be walking in open rebellion, and they will perish eternally. I don't like this passage, but I'm going to tell you this. It's really important that we get this doctrine because there are a lot of people that think God's grace just goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever without end, and God never reaches the place to where he takes his hand off of anybody. That is not true. Your Bible says so. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your grace is absolutely abounding. We thank you that it is sufficient for our weaknesses. We thank you that, God, you call out to those who are in rebellion. And, Lord, you do that for a long time. But, Lord, you won't tarry forever. Your hand of judgment won't be stayed forever. And, in fact, your word plainly teaches that you will not strive with man forever. And so, God, we ask that you would show us those people in our lives that we need to talk to about their behavior, that we need to, in essence, stand firm and confront. God, if it's our family members, help us to be strong. If it's our friends, help us to be bold. Lord, if it's someone that we know at work, Lord, help us to be that voice that is light, that is salt, Lord, that is you. We thank you for the passages in our Bibles, Lord, your word, that challenge us. And so as we're challenged tonight, God, strengthen us to receive it, cause us to believe it, and help us to move forward in truth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. It is very interesting to me, and I can tell you one of the great struggles that I've had as a pastor is to plainly teach people the truth, to look them in the eye and say, Thus says the Lord, not Jeff, 
your Bible says you cannot live as a harlot. You cannot live as a whoremonger. You cannot live as a drunkard. You cannot live as a drug addict and profess the name of Christ. They are contradictory to one another. Now, is there grace for sin? Of course. But there's not grace for open rebellion. There is judgment for open rebellion. There always has been. There always will be. And at some point in time, that judgment turns finite. And so tonight, a tough passage. Remember, as I shared with you, this is one of those passages that applied to Hosea and his marriage to Gomer and the situation there. It is very clear it was spoken to the children of Israel and was meant very directly for them. And it has future implications for how and when they will come to Christ. That will happen during the tribulation. And it absolutely is the same principle for us because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? God's character, His Word says He changes not. So whatever he did and why he did it to the Jewish people remains. Amen? I almost went into a Oxford King James English. It's because I've been doing that all week. So if he then had a limit, he now has a limit. If he then hardened men's heart unto their own rebellion... He still hardens men's heart unto their own rebellion. That should scare the pants off of you. Hopefully not literally. And here's why. If there's any area in your life where you're still struggling, you need to be very afraid of that sin. Because to wander in it indefinitely puts yourself in exactly the same place that we find ourselves in this passage. Hear this, O priests, he says. Take heed, O house of Israel. Pretty clear what he's saying. This is the sentence. Give ear, O house of the king. He's left nothing, no stone unturned. He says the entire children of Israel, the house of Israel, the religious leaders of the house of Israel, and the civil leaders of the house of Israel. For yours is the judgment. Is that plain enough for you? Because you have been a snare to Mitzpah, you've spread the net on Tabor. If you look at these two places, they're in the center of the northern kingdom. Basically, what is happening here is there was no reach that this sin had not gone. It had corrupted the entire nation, uh, the northern kingdom. They're now walking in open, complete disobedience and rebellion to God. And so it certainly plays into our place in the world today as a nation that once, when we were founded, you realize that for the first hundred years of our existence, about 95% of all Americans were Bible-believing Christians. So when someone says to you, we're not a Christian nation, though that in a principle is true today, it is not how we were founded. It is not where we got our systems of laws. It is not where we got our morals. 
uh, that it was supposed to be carnal, worldly, and immoral. We were founded on biblical principles. We were founded specifically on Christian principles. And so now we find ourselves debating things in the public square that are so contrary to God's word that you can't even mention them in the same breath with the name of God. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter. Notice the use of the qualifying statements here. This is not casual sin. Very important you make a distinction here. This is not a stumbling. This is not a failure. This is a way of life. You must make that distinction. This is someone who looks you in the eye and says, I believe God has to accept my homosexuality. This is someone who looks you in the eye and says, God has to accept my drunkenness. This is someone who looks you in the eye and looks God in the eye and says, you know what, I don't care what God thinks, I'm going to do it anyway. Make the distinction. This is rebellion. Though I rebuke them all. Notice they knew the truth. The truth was very clear. That word used for rebuke there means to make it known. Loudly. This is an open rebuke. God says, look, I've told you what you need to do. I have given you the example. I've codified it in my word would be another way to look at it. Here's what I expect of you. I'm not asking you to be perfect. I'm telling you you can't be rebellious. I'm not asking you line by line and item by item to go through one at a time and eliminate them from a list and never sin again. I'm saying your heart is inclined to the very things that I have told you you cannot do. I know Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry. Israel is defiled. In this case, it was literal sexual sin. And I want to just ask you a very simple question. Is this not the mantra of our country today? More than one-third of the content of the entire Internet is sexual. One-third. There are over 60 billion pornographic web pages in existence today. What used to happen at the age of 15 to 17, but 20 years ago, now happens at age 12, the loss of one's virginity. We better be concerned. They do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God. They have no conscious desire to turn to the Lord. Basically, they're saying, God, take a hike. We're going to do it our way, and we don't care what you think. Notice this. And they do not know the Lord. 
when sin becomes so pervasive in someone's life that they can engage in it without any thought of God. Notice they do not turn towards the Lord. The conclusion needs to be drawn that they do not know the Lord. And I want to encourage you to pray for such people as if they do not know the Lord. Don't kid yourself and don't give them false hope. If you know somebody in open rebellion, we need to make sure that they know that from your perspective, from what God's Word says, that this is not okay with God. Because to not inform them is to be a watchman that ought not be on the wall. For the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, for they do not know the Lord, for the pride of Israel testifies to his face. They literally look at God and say, we don't care. What do you think coming down the pike for America? We don't care. We're going to make it so, you know, transvestites and whoever can use whatever bathroom they want. We don't care. We're going to tell everybody that everything's okay. We don't care. If it applied to the nation Israel, God's beloved and chosen people, I guarantee you it applies to us. Guarantee you. Because God doesn't change. And therefore Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. And Judah also stumbles with them. Now you remember the story. Judah was not as embroiled in sin. But now it's even reaching the southern kingdom. I liken this to our nation. There are some states that are still holding out. They're still standing strong. They're still standing up in the public square and going, not in our state, we ain't doing it, sorry, but no, thank you very much. We're going to do what's right. And yet, creeping in, even to the great state of Texas, we find the effects of a nation that will refuse to turn to the Lord. Now, I'm not saying it's too late, but I'm telling you, we're going the wrong way. And unless it turns around, I fully expect God to do what God has already done. Judah stumbles with them, with their flocks and herds. They should go and seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. Are you getting the picture? You see, there comes a point in time when God says, you had your chance. What do you think all those rescue boats were? What do you think I was trying to tell you for the last 50 years? What do you think I was doing? You remember all those Christians that protested against Roe v. Wade and you passed it anyway? Well, now there are 50 million dead children because of it. I'm not okay with that, says the Lord. means that there's a price to pay for rebellion. 
They will go and seek the Lord, but they will not find Him, for He has withdrawn Himself from them. Very clear what God is saying here. You want your sin? You can keep it. Don't come crying to me. You're you're even going to reach a place in time, well, maybe we should just go get back to church. Too late. You delve too deep. You went too far. You crossed the line. For they have dealt treacherously with the Lord. For they have begotten pagan children. A new moon shall devour them and their heritage. You see, the summation of the evidence was pretty clear in this court. And I want to remind you that when you look at these things, These are nothing new. This has been mankind. There's been a tremendous determination to go the wrong way. And anyone, any nation, any country, any race, any creed that continues down that path, there is a point at which God reaches this place and says, You want it? You got it? I'm done. I'm finished. Now, do I believe that America has reached that place? Nope, I don't. Not yet. But I do believe that is exactly where we're heading. Because what I see is a nation of Christians that are spineless and gutless and refuse to stand for the truth. That's what I see. Now, is that everyone everywhere in every church? Absolutely not. But it is a large percentage, if not the majority. And if that doesn't change, I don't believe there is any hope for our country. And consequently, I don't believe there's any hope for the world. Is that very strong? Yes, it is. And it's my personal conviction that I'm correct. Maybe I'm wrong. But I don't think it's worth the gamble. I don't think it's worth what this passage says. The battle against evil always ends up as a battle of will. And it always comes down to, will we, not can we? Turn your Bibles to John chapter 3, if you will. And I want you to look at this passage with me very quickly. Verse 19, it says, and this is the condemnation. Remember, Jesus said he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Amen? He didn't come to condemn. He said, this is the condemnation. You want to know where condemnation comes from? That the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. That's the problem. It's not God's problem, it's man's problem. It's always been man's problem. Men love evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. You getting the picture here? It's not that they cannot, it's that they will not come to the Lord. 
It's not that God is so hidden from them. It's not that it's so hard or so difficult or requires so many years in church or Bible college or go to some catechism someplace. It's that men love evil. But the one who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen and that they have been done in God. You see, when my heart's inclined towards the Lord, I have a hatred for the things He hates. And I want to just give you a shocker. If you don't hate what God hates, you need to check and see whether you're of the faith or not. I'm not talking about you having total victory. And I'm not talking about anyone having total victory. I'm talking about having a genuine disdain for the same things that God hates, as far as you know them. God holds us accountable for the things that we know in the Lord. And there are a lot of people wandering this earth who absolutely know exactly what their Bible says, and yet they do exactly the wrong thing. Have you ever wondered why Jesus said, Narrow is the way that leads unto righteousness, and few there are who go there upon it? Have you ever wondered why? You see, when I look at that passage, what I see is this. God's saying, you can't keep your sin and have the right relationship with me. You can be a sinner, and you will be saved by grace, but you need to hate sin. It needs to bother you. If sin doesn't bother a believer, there is a problem. Period. And frankly, I'm sick to death of people looking me in the eye and saying, I know my Bible says that, but it doesn't apply to me. I can't tell you how many times that happens. Maybe not quite that boldly, but that is the basic connotation that's being made. I know that the only reasons for divorce are infidelity and abandonment by an unbeliever, but my husband doesn't make enough money. That's rebellion to God's Word. Well, my wife is contentious, so I'm leaving her. That's rebellion to God's Word. For thus says the Lord God of hosts, I hate divorce. So He is not going to ordain something that He hates. He may allow it. It may happen. But if you're purposing it, you've got a problem with God. told you it wasn't going to be easy. The summation of the evidence here is pretty clear. They'll go for their flocks. They'll go with their herds. They'll seek the Lord, but they won't find Him because He's withdrawn Himself. Can I remind you that God gave us a very clear three-chapter commentary on this very thing, and you all know exactly where it's found. It's in the book of Exodus. begins in roughly chapter 8, goes through chapter 10. It is the story of the life of Pharaoh. You guys all know him, right? I want to give you a few choice readings from that particular book. And I want you to just briefly go there. Chapter 8, it says in verse 15, But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. 
Jump with me now to verse 32 of chapter 8. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, and neither would he let the people go. Now I want you to get really frightened with me and go to chapter 9 and to verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Ouch. You mean God hardens hearts? Yes, He does. If you refuse to turn from your sin, eventually, and I believe for a couple of reasons, but I'll give you the one that is first and foremost in my thinking, that to protect other people from your demise and all that you will bring to this earth, that God, in fact, hastens the process of getting you off of this rock by hardening your heart. Because he knows the end. He knows where you're going. And when your heart gets that hard, he finally says, it's the way you're going, so be it. Now, I want you to see a couple other things here. Look at verse chapter 9, verse 34, perhaps one of the saddest two verses found in the Bible. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more. You get the picture? Moses is going, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Stop, let the people go. There is a loud voice for righteousness, and Pharaoh says, Nah, I'm going to do it some more. And he hardened his heart and he and his servants. Notice what happens when leadership turns the wrong direction. That's why in this church, we hold leadership accountable to this standard right here. And this one alone. Notice, and so the heart of Pharaoh was hard, and neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord God had spoken to Moses. Chapter 10 and verse 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Are you getting the picture? It started out with Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And I want to remind you that when this all started, The only thing that God did initially was turn the river Nile into blood. Amen? A completely reversible situation whereby, by the way, the Nile was considered a god. And so the god died, and the god became very bloody, and the god became very useless. And so God inflicted basically a torment of mind upon them to start with. He then moved on, did he not, to some frogs followed by some flies. He kind of pestered them. And by the time you get to the seventh, eighth, ninth plague, because their leader is going the wrong direction, God says, I'm going to hasten this process and I'm going to make the leadership go all the way downhill. The last three times here, God does the hardening. Very, very sobering passage of Scripture. Why do I say that this way? You have to forgive me because I'm working with less space than normal here. So, So, why does it happen that way? 
I don't know about you, but I don't want the hammer to fall. Check out that verse in Jeremiah 23. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock to pieces? God wants to love us unreservedly. But He also loves us so much that He will unreservedly chasten us whom He loves. Amen? And you know that you're God's child when that chastening does some good. And on the contrary, you know that you are not God's child when that chastening does no good. You need to be very afraid when you can sin with impunity. It should scare you to death. You should be wandering around going, man, I need to get my life right with the Lord. And if that stops... While you still have breath, that would be the moment for you to repent, to turn and say, Lord, I'm sorry. You see, they're going to turn and want to turn, but they're going to be unable to turn. Hebrews chapter 10, a passage that we covered beginning in verse 26. And I believe it's in the context of this passage in Hosea and also those verses that we looked at in the book of Exodus. For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, that's pretty clear. That word willfully means rebelliously. That's the best word to stick in there in the English language. If we sin with impunity, if we sin rebelliously, if we sin in copious amounts without any remorse, without any guilt, we simply say, forget it, I don't care. After we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The plain understanding of that verse is quite simple. Whether you were once saved and are no longer saved, or whether you were never saved and fooling yourself, the result is the same. There remains no sacrifice for your sin. You can imagine exactly what that means. You are lost. To me, I don't care whether you take the Calvinist view or the Arminian view or the Calvary view. I don't care whether you look at this, wow, I think that says I can lose my salvation, or wow, I think that means I was never saved. I don't care. What I care about is what it says. There remains no sacrifice for sin. I don't care how you got to that place. You don't want to be there. And you don't want anybody else to be there either. The context is willful, rebellious, sinful behavior. So when that exists, if you're a Christian and know somebody who's in it, you need to be praying like nobody's business for that person who's in it. If it's you, you better be repenting like there's nobody's business Because if you don't, and if you reach that place that Pharaoh reached, and God starts hardening your heart, I can tell you what he's doing. He's clearing the path to get rid of you. To take you from this earth so you affect no one else with your sin. That's what he's doing. But a certain, and I don't relish delivering this message, believe me. But I think it's important because you guys are mature. You can eat meat 
And you need to know this for you. You need to know this for your kids. You need to know this for your parents. You need to know this for the several hundred people who aren't here right now but only come every other Sunday. You need to know it for the rebellious ones in this town and for our nation. This is why we stand strong when we know what God's Word says. Because I don't know where the line is. I don't. That's why when kids ask me that question when I'm doing kids' conferences, you don't even want to contemplate where that line is, much less actually try and figure it out. Because in doing so, you're on the wrong side of the equation. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment, fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. You see, you declare with your own actions whether you're on God's side or not. Did not Jesus say, you are either for me or against me? He went on to qualify that, for no man can serve two masters. For he will love the one and hate the other, or hate the one and love the other, for no one can serve both God and mammon. You see, the issue is, who's your God? And when you sin with impunity, when you look at God and his word and you say, I don't care what you think, I don't care what you wrote, I realize it says this, but I'm going to do it anyway because I disagree with you, I disagree with your word, and every person who has ever stood for the truth was wrong, you are in a hellishly dangerous place. Judgment is all that remains. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three. Do you really want to stand on the law? That's what he's saying. You really want to boil it down to rights and wrongs? Tell you what I want. I want grace and mercy. I don't want the law. And I for sure don't want to tell God, well, I kept these eight, but I didn't do this one because I didn't think you were right. You're asking for judgment. Verse 30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people, for it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You remember what I said about fear and love being bookends? They're bookends. God wants us over here in love. But if he can't get us with love and he can't get us with grace, then the reason fear is there is so that we look at that other side and go, man, I don't want to be there. This passage says that God will no longer be available when they call. They're going to be going, hey, Lord, uh, we want to change. Sorry. I'm done. I'm finished. Just like he did with Pharaoh. Once Pharaoh crossed that line, there was no turning back. It was over. Grace abounds. Make no mistake about it. Grace is also a free gift. It's obtained by faith, which is given to us. But grace does not give you the right. Never allows you to sin without consequences. In desperation, these guys resorted to witchcraft, whoredom, 
And I want to use that word because it was sexual promiscuity at its most devious. Whoredom. All they thought about constantly was who they were going to sleep with next. And if you even turn on your television, that is the message here in America. It's a scary thing. I don't know that there's a more terrible state of soul that can be reached than that. It says in verse 7, For they have dealt treacherously with the Lord. You know what that word treacherously means? It means with malice and forethought of evil intent. Malice and forethought of evil intent. They began to think evil so much that it occupied every ounce and every minute of, of their time and of their capacity to think. And so eventually they become overwhelmed with that situation and all of a sudden God says, I'm done. You got all the grace you're going to get. It's over. I would ask you, what did they expect would be the outcome? That is a question that I use in marriage counseling relatively frequently. What do you expect the outcome to be? If you keep going this direction, let's see, there's two, two choices here. You can be restored, be reconciled, repent, and, and fix your marriage, or you can be divorced. That's the two options. And yet people flirt with the wrong option. You can keep being a drunkard. You, you can keep that life of drugs. And I want to share with you, probably some of you remember or knew Casey when he was coming here to this church. Struggled for a long time. They found him dead. Overcome. I don't know. I want to know. And I want you to know. I want you to abide in the vine. I want you to walk humbly with your God. I want you to remember that immutably the laws of God are every bit as powerful as the laws of physics. Isaiah 56 says, regarding his watchmen, his watchmen are blind, they're ignorant, they're dumb, they're dogs, they don't even bark. What good is a dog that doesn't bark? If you've got a watchdog, do you want a watchdog that doesn't bark? The robbers come in the house and the dog wags its tail and, oh, the money's over here, come on over, look, it's right there, there's the safe, and oh, over here, here's the freezer, it's got all the meat in it, could you take some, just give me one of the pieces of the meat. It's the picture. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber, in other words, pastors whose concern is leisure, not the truth. That doesn't mean that you can't enjoy a camping trip. You can't go on vacation. That's not what's being said here. It means they no longer bark. 
They no longer speak the truth. They don't have any boldness. And when danger comes, they're like, well, you know, I don't want to get caught up in it. Isaiah 62 gives us the other picture. Verse 6, For I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem, and they shall never hold their peace night or day. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent. Give Him no rest until He establishes. In other words, it's saying, proclaim the name of the Lord until He comes again. Don't stop doing it. Till He makes Jerusalem the praise of the earth. Tell you what, that hasn't happened yet. So the job of the church is to speak the truth in love. And I don't think there's anything that's more loving than tell people who are quite probably, and hear me when I say this, quite probably perishing. I didn't say are. I said quite probably are perishing. I am not judging their salvation. I'm judging the fruit of their life. And the fruit of their life would tell you that they're perishing. You don't warn that person. I don't, I don't believe you love them. I don't believe you love somebody if you let them walk in sin. Psalm 94 says, Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. It says in verse 11, For the Lord knows the thoughts of man. You see, God knows exactly what He's going to do. And He knows exactly when He's going to do it. We don't know when He's going to do it. And we don't know exactly what He's going to do. But we have a real, real, real good idea what it is that He wants from us. And so when there's something that is absolutely the opposite of what He wants for us, how much of it do you think we're supposed to be doing? The answer is none. Because we don't know exactly when the Lord's coming. We don't know when our last breath will be taken, nor do we know that for anybody else. And so if you want to walk with assurance, walk in sinlessness as best as you possibly can. And when you know what God's Word says, that is your stance. Period. When you know what God's Word says, that is your opinion. Period. I almost jumped through my TV screen a couple of weeks ago at Bill O'Reilly because he was, he was talking about Jesus. And now he's writing a new book. It's not out yet. Killing Jesus. And I happen to like both of his other books, Killing Kennedy and Killing Lincoln. They're wonderful reads. But he started talking about whether Jesus was the only way. And he said, well, I don't think so. And I thought to myself, that is a man who does not know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Because my Bible says he is the only way. And he just had the ears of 40 million people. And he could have said, Jesus is the way. And he didn't do it. That was the most unloving thing he could have ever said. And by the way, 
that is the stance of the Catholic Church, that Jesus is the only way of salvation. How you get to him, that's a little tweaked at times, but... Let's finish this. Blow the ram's, ram's horn, verse 8 says, in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Now we're back in the middle of the northern kingdom. Aloud in Ben-Avon, the house of evil. It used to be the house of bread, the house of the Lord. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel I will make known what is sure. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. They, they pulled up the stones on the corner of their property so that no one could tell where they lived. And I will pour out my wrath on them like water, for Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. Underline that. It is a dangerous thing to believe in secular humanism, existentialism, and relativism. That is human precept. And it is rarely correct and very often gets altered a week later. And therefore I will be to Ephraim like a moth, to a house of Judah like rottenness. Think about what a strange thing to say. But have you ever noticed you never find the moths that eat your garments? Never. I've never seen one. I've never actually seen a moth that eats a garment. I've just found the garments destroyed. No moth, no eggs, no evidence they were ever, not even any moth droppings. Just no clothes. <laughs> That's because it comes in secretly and destroys secretly and you don't know it's going on and all of a sudden, wow, how did I get here full of holes? Dangerous. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, Ephraim went to Assyria and sent King Jerob and yet he cannot cure you. You see, they tried to make an allegiance with the enemy. That's what Ephraim did. God says we can't do this. So you know what? We'll find somebody who will agree with us. We'll take up their way. It'll be fine. Not so fast. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. There comes a point in time when you become the enemy of the Lord. That is not a good thing. When God says, for the sake of the rest of the people on the planet, I probably need to take you out to spare them, that's not a good thing. You ever wondered why people in habitual sin look like they do? I've shared with some of you this story. I, I've bumped into people that I knew previously, and I looked at them and I'm like, You? You look like you're 150 years old. Life had taken its toll, sin had taken its toll. Sin always kills. The horrible thing is, it very often kills slowly. And painfully, but very authoritatively. I will tear them and go away. I will take them away, and no one shall rescue. 
I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face, and in their affliction they will earnestly seek me. We know when that day is coming. Your Bible calls it the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. The day of the vengeance of the Lord, the day of wrath. You see, Israel was doomed. Now I would ask you to look at the history. Remember I said this was written roughly 800 B.C. or B.C.E., whichever one you prefer. Before the Christian era or before Christ. So if you are a modern person and you need to hear B.C.E. for me to be correct, B.C.E. From 800 B.C.E. until today, Israel has not turned to the Lord. They remain not turned to the Lord. They have remained at war, dispersed, scattered, absolutely without hope. Right now it's believed that in Israel, there are a couple of statistics that I looked at yesterday, that less than 15% of all Israeli Jews even own a Bible. And less than that read it. What God says, God does. But there'll come a time when they're going to turn. But it will be in great affliction. If you know what God says to do, I would say to you the best thing you can do is do it. And if you know someone who claims the name of Christ and they're walking in rebellion, I would say the most loving thing you can do is to ask them a very simple question. Is this okay with God? And if they answer that honestly and say no, then you need to tell them to quit right now before it's too late. Before they go into that pool of lost souls that God says, I've hardened my heart. You got it? You want it. Now, having said all that, I leave you with this. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, lest any of us should boast. Don't trounce the grace of God. Don't stomp on the faith that He's given you to believe. Repent, rest, And trust in the Lord with all of your heart and don't lean on your own understanding or anyone else's. And in all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will guide and direct your path. But He'll never guide you towards sin. Always away from sin. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the difficult things that You sometimes need to say to us. And Lord, I I truly believe that a vast majority of those in this room tonight maybe simply needed a reminder that your justice and your judgment is sure. And that perhaps we have some people in our lives that we need to be more bold with, more direct with, more concerned about. Lord, just as freedom is never free, grace also was not free. Jesus, you died to set us free. You shed your blood to set us free. 
you were whipped and beaten and bruised, not for your own sin, but for mine. And so, Lord, tonight, make us strong. Cause us to stand. Lord, as we have been studying in the book of Ephesians, having done all to stand, stand therefore. We love you, we praise you, we bless you, and all God's children said, Amen.